Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 8th episode of season 7. I hope you had the chance to listen to last week's episode on the case of Lee and Sabine. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Back in the 1950s, the US Air Force considered launching a nuclear missile at the moon as a show of superiority. I mean, that is mental. Let's move on. The show's final opening icebreaker segment is this. Random quote of the day. In the end, it's not the years in your life that count. It's the life in your years. Abraham Lincoln. This week's case was suggested via email by listeners Kayleigh Brown and John Robertson, and we're in the Midlothian town of Dalkeith, Scotland. Here are five quick fire facts about Dalkeith. Number one, at its peak, Dalkeith was the most important grain market town in Scotland. Its architectural position was reinforced by a wide variety of local manufacturing plants and workshops. Number two, Dalkeith Palace was completed in 1711 and is regarded as one of the grandest early classical houses in Scotland. Number three, Montague Bridge is located in Dalkeith Country Park. The spectacular single arch spans over the River North Esk and is one of the last works of legendary Scottish architect Robert Adam. Number four, Newbattle Abbey was a medieval Cistercian monastery established in 1140. The grounds became a stately home after the monastery was disestablished in 1587 and is now a college. And number five, the Battle of Roslyn took place on February 24, 1303 as part of the First War of Scottish Independence. Roslyn is a village a few miles away from Dalkeith and there's a memorial in the village in remembrance of those who fought in the Scottish victory. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Dalkeith was 12,342. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. This case will likely be the most divisive one I've covered so far. Debate still exists around whether or not Luke Mitchell murdered Jodie Jones, and there is a large community of people that believe he has been wrongly imprisoned. A recent Channel 5 documentary on the case has been deemed by some as proof that Luke is innocent, whereas those on the other side believe it was a biased piece of television that left out vital pieces of information to push its narrative and agenda. My aim with this podcast is to be as objective as possible. This is not one of those podcasts where the host voices their opinion about what they think happened and whose side they're on. I'm going to cover the case using information from both sides, And as always, I'll leave it to you, the listener, to make up your own mind. 
There will no doubt be some aspects that I've missed, but I can assure you that if I have, it's not been intentional. I don't usually include caveats such as this in my episodes, but I'm anticipating some strong reactions from one side or the other, if not both, so I figured it would be best to explain myself before starting. The timeline of our story this week began in March 2003, but I'm going to jump back a few years before getting into it. I found out through my research that Jodie Jones, who was born in 1989 and lived in an end-terraced house in East Houses, a settlement a mile or two south of Dalkeith, lost her father at a very young age. Jimmy Jones ended his life by hanging himself from a tree in the family's garden when Jodie was just nine. Jimmy, who, along with his wife Judith, worked for Royal Mail, had three children. The eldest was Joseph, the middle child was Janine, and Jodie was the youngest. After the traumatic loss of her father, Janine ended up moving out of the family home and living with her grandma in the neighbouring community of Mayfield. Despite going through such a distressing event, Jodie remained her upbeat self and always sought to bring out the best of those around her. She did well at school and was popular with her fellow students and teachers, but she became a tad more rebellious as she entered her teenage years. She was a keen music lover and had an incredibly varied taste. It was expected that she would do well in her upcoming exams at St David's Roman Catholic High School in the summer of 2003. Sadly, Jodie would not get the chance to take those exams. Her life would cruelly be cut short that June. I'll now introduce the other key person in this week's case. Luke Mitchell was born on July 24th, 1988 and lived in New Battle, a village that neighbours Dalkeith to the north and East Houses to the east. He lived there with his mum Corrine and his older brother Shane. His parents separated around 1999, I believe. Like Jodie, Luke attended St David's and was also well into his music. The pair are assumed to have met through school and began dating in March 2003 when they were both 14. Their relationship soon became a physical one, with the couple seeing each other more and more frequently. There's a secluded footpath that connects New Battle to East Houses, known locally as Ronsdyke Path. It was a shortcut the pair frequently used to get to each other's houses, though it seems as if Jodie was the one doing most of the travelling. The journey would take about 15 minutes on foot. By May 2003, Jodie was experimenting with her appearance, acquiring piercings, changing her hairstyle and colour, etc., and also began smoking weed recreationally. Luke was the one supplying Jodie with weed, so it makes sense as to why she was the one visiting Luke at his house more often than he would visit hers. Judith was incredibly concerned when she heard about Jodie's drug use and grounded her youngest daughter for a week. Once the week was up, Jodie was given a strict curfew and was only allowed out of the house between the hours of 6pm and 9pm. Obviously she could still go to school, but I'm talking about free time. On top of that, she was given several house chores. I can't say for sure when it started, but Luke was also seeing another girl from school at the same time as Jodie, and she reportedly looked the double of her. Jodie's curfew remained in place until Monday, June 30th, 2003. After getting home from school, Judith sat down with Jodie and explained that she was lifting her strict curfew effective immediately. She said, that's you, Hen. You can go out when you want to. You don't have to wait till six o'clock. Jodie was in a buoyant mood after hearing that, and the first person she told was Luke via text message. After organising a meet-up at Luke's house, Jodie went upstairs, got herself ready, and headed out the door. Before leaving the house between 4.50 and 5pm, Jodie turned to her mum and said, That's me off now, mum. 
Judith would not see her daughter alive again. As Jodie reached the entrance to Roan's Dyke Path, she entered it as she had many times before, but she would not make it out the other side. At some point, Jodie was attacked by an assailant wielding a knife as she walked through the secluded shortcut. Using the knife and his bare fists, the attacker beat up Jodie and stabbed her several times all over her body. Jodie was stripped, strangled and almost decapitated after having her neck slashed by her attacker between 12 and 20 times. Some reports suggest that Jodie was sexually assaulted, whereas others state she was not. Seeing as I can't clarify either way, I'll leave it there in that regard. Her hands had been tied behind her back, leaving her completely defenceless. Having said that, Jodie is thought to have put up as good a fight as she could against her attacker before succumbing to his onslaught. Her body was left behind a V-section of the wall that ran alongside Roan's dyke path. As the hours ticked by, concern rose at both Luke and Jodie's respective homes. Luke had anticipated Jodie to arrive at his house in New Battle between 5.15 and 5.30pm, but she never showed. Alan Ovens, Judith's partner, answered the house phone at 5.40pm that evening to a confused Luke Mitchell. He asked Alan where Jodie was, as she had not turned up at his house as planned. Alan explained that Jodie had left around 40 minutes earlier, so they had as much knowledge of her whereabouts as they assumed Luke did. No further contact was made by Luke for the next five hours. It's logical to think that Judith and Alan probably thought that Jodie had arrived at Luke's house as a result of the lack of contact. Surely he'd have contacted them again if his concerns had grown and Jodie had still not arrived. When it got to 10 o'clock, Judith became worried that Jodie had still not returned home. Even though the curfew had been lifted, it was expected that Jodie had come home not much later than around 10pm. Judith had been trying to call Jodie's mobile during those five hours of silence from Luke, but was unable to get through to her. She then did the next best thing and sent Luke a text message asking him where Jodie was. No reply. The reason for the lack of a reply right away is likely down to the fact that Luke and his family had grown so concerned about Jodie's lack of showing up that they decided to form a search party. They headed out towards Roan's Dyke Path at around 10pm and within half an hour, Luke would make a startling discovery. According to Luke Mitchell, he'd become separated from his family and was looking at an area of the nearby wall with his German shepherd, Mia. At the V-section of the wall that I alluded to earlier, Mia apparently stopped dead in her tracks. Shining his torch through the gap, Luke spotted an object in the darkness. It appeared to be the body of a young girl with her arms tied behind her back and her clothes removed. Her trousers had been used as makeshift handcuffs. Luke alerted his family of the discovery and a call was swiftly made to the police. Meanwhile, back in East Houses, Judith sent a text to Jodie's mobile at 10.41pm which read, Right, that's you grounded for another two weeks. She had no idea the body of her youngest daughter had just been found in the nearby woods. Two minutes later, at 10.43pm, Luke called Judith's mobile and informed her that he had not seen Jodie at all that night. You'll notice a discrepancy there with the timings. If Jodie's body was found by Luke at around 10.30pm, why did he inform her mum 30 minutes later that he hadn't seen her? That's just one of many contradicting aspects of this complicated case. Judith called Luke's mobile four more times between 10.49 and 11.17pm, each time, he reassured her that he and his family were out looking for Jodie. Before long, the police secured the crime scene and informed Judith of their discovery. Let's go back a tad now and add some further information to that initial portion of our time frame. 
Luke and Jodie had been texting each other since 4.35pm that evening, after Jodie's curfew had been lifted by Judith. Jodie left the house between 4.50 and 5pm, and Luke, for some reason, used his mobile to ring the speaking clock, a time-of-day voice service, at precisely 4.54pm. Luke would later be questioned by the police as to why he had made the call, but he couldn't give them a reason. Luke's alibi was that he was at home cooking tea, or dinner, when Jodie set off to his house. If he was at home, why didn't he just check one of the no-doubt many clocks in the house if he needed to know the time? That was what the police were asking. The prosecution would use that as part of their evidence to prove that Luke was not at his house when he said he was, and had, in fact, gone to meet Jodie at Roansdyke Path. The call, they suggested, was therefore made after he'd left. Once the crime scene had been secured, forensic teams conducted their searches. On a nearby tree, there were some letters carved. LM and JJ, Luke and Jodie's respective initials, had been crudely etched into the bark. Was that the work of Luke leaving a calling card after murdering his girlfriend? Or was it done by someone who knew the pair and wanted to frame Luke? Police were also suspicious about how quickly and easily Luke had found Jodie's body, despite it being well hidden behind a unique part of the wall. Was Mia simply an excellent sniffer dog and led Luke straight there? Had Luke just been lucky and stumbled across the site? Or had Luke purposely left Jodie's body by a recognisable piece of the wall so that he could easily find it knowing he'd form a search party later? Add that to the pile of unanswered questions. In total, forensic teams recovered over 100 pieces of evidence from the crime scene, but none of it could be attributed to Luke Mitchell. I'm not talking about any old random pieces of evidence either. I'm talking hair, saliva, semen and blood. They even located a used condom full of what one report described as fresh semen. Again, this was not attributed to being Luke's. More on that condom later. Now I know that I've just said that no evidence of Luke Mitchell was found at the crime scene. That's not entirely true though. One key piece of evidence left out of the Channel 5 documentary, which again apparently has a heavy bias towards Luke being innocent, was that Luke's DNA was found on Jodie's bra and her DNA was found on his trousers. Perhaps the reason for its omission from the documentary was that an agreement was reached between the Crown and Luke's defence team to dismiss that evidence due to the pair being in a sexual relationship. DNA in that scenario wouldn't prove Luke innocent or guilty, so it was omitted from the trial. It's still worth noting though. After identifying Luke as their key witness and then key suspect, he was forensically searched. The other three members of the search party that night were not searched for some reason. Luke displayed no cuts or bruises on his face or body, which in theory he should have if Jodie had fought against her attacker. Also, Luke had not showered when he was forensically examined. He still had dirt under his fingernails and his hair was greasy, a result of not being washed. If true, that all but rules out the possibility of him going home, cleaning himself up and getting changed in an attempt to remove any DNA evidence. Another argument for Luke being unfairly treated by the police is that his statement appears to have been the only one recorded, despite searches of his person and even his house finding no evidence of him having killed Jodie. His statement was also the only one marked as suspect, as far as I can tell. The story will continue after these quick messages. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And now, back to the story. A post-mortem was performed on Jodie by forensic pathologist Professor Anthony Busuttil, who estimated her time of death as being 5.15pm on the evening of June 30th. He did note, though, that his estimation may not be completely accurate due to Jodie's body being out in the elements for a good few hours. Professor Busuttil explained that the weapon responsible for slashing Jodie's throat was a, quote, stout, sharp-pointed blade. I've mentioned how the police found nothing in Luke's house that connected him to Jodie's murder. That didn't stop them from taking a load of his personal items, though. A house search on July 4th, 2003, four days after Jodie's body was found, saw police seize over 20 bottles of a yellowish liquid, which they thought was urine, a Marilyn Manson CD, a Marilyn Manson DVD, and a Marilyn Manson calendar. It's safe to say Luke was a fan of the controversial performer whose stage name combines Marilyn Monroe's first name with Charles Manson's surname. A bit of digging reveals that the CD in question was Manson's newly released fifth album, The Golden Age of Grotesque, featuring songs such as This Is The New Shit and Mob Scene. With limited editions of the album came a bonus DVD titled Doppelhertz, which means double heart in German. Detective Constable Stephen Quinn described the short film as a weird sort of gothic video. He said, The portion we watched also seemed to include a number of flash images. In some of them, there seemed to be a young girl who is naked. In some of them, she appeared to be lying on the ground. The girls were, to some extent, molested and carried away. Luke was also said to be a fan of Manson's paintings of the mutilated body of Elizabeth Short better known as the Black Dahlia. Luke purchased the CD-DVD combo on July 2nd, 2003, two days after Jodie was murdered. Professor Busuttil explained that the injuries inflicted on Jodie and Elizabeth were similar to some extent, as was the location of where they were killed, but he admitted the circumstances were far from identical. Rather than keeping a low profile in the immediate aftermath of the murder, Luke decided to leave a bouquet of flowers at the entrance of Roansdyke Path in memory of Jodie. With the flowers, he left a handwritten card which read, The finest day I ever had was when tomorrow never came. Luke, kiss, kiss, kiss. That's a quote attributed to former Nirvana lead singer Kurt Cobain. Further searches of Luke's house led to no further evidence being found, which no doubt confused the police greatly. Given the brutality of Jodie's murder, it was more than likely that her killer would have been covered almost head to toe in her blood. They found no traces of blood in Luke's house, not on the taps of sinks, not on door handles, nowhere. We've already established that Luke probably hadn't gone home to shower, so it's not surprising that the police found nothing if that's the case. In total, over 3,000 statements were taken from over 2,000 individuals, but the police's focus remained firmly on Luke Mitchell. His supposed goth lifestyle, which was ever so popular in the early noughties, is what defenders of Luke believe led the police to consider him as their main suspect. Having satanic artwork on his high school exercise books didn't sit right with some, nor did his drug use. 
Luke was taken in for further questioning on August 14, 2003, but was released without charge. I've made that sound a lot more routine than it was in reality. Luke was denied his right to a legal representative and the chance to speak to his mum. As a recently turned 15-year-old, he wouldn't have known any better. According to Luke, who spoke out for the first time in the recent Channel 5 documentary, the officers attempted to force him into confessing. He said, I requested to go to the toilet and I was stood at the urinal with two adult males shouting at me that I was to just confess. Confess, you little bastard. Just tell us what you did and we'll make it okay, is what Luke claims one of the officers shouted at him in the restroom. September 3rd, 2003 was the day of Jody Jones's funeral. Unsurprisingly, Judith Jones requested the Mitchell family not to attend. On the same day as the funeral, Luke contacted Sky News and gave them a brief interview in which he reiterated that he had not murdered Jodie. After the funeral, Luke visited Jodie's grave with some flowers and laid them next to it. Judith swiftly removed the flowers once she'd learned about them being placed there. On October 3rd, 2003, a month after Jodie's funeral, Lothian and Borders Police made contact with the FBI in the USA. They wanted experts at the National Centre for the Analysis of Violent Crime, NCAVC, to produce a psychological profile of Jodie's killer. They requested this even though, in their mind, they were certain that Luke Mitchell was her killer. The report, produced by the NCAVC, was compared with Luke Mitchell's profile, but frustratingly, the report was never produced in court. It wasn't even disclosed to Luke's legal representatives. Some people in the FBI have said that's because the profile didn't match who they figured it could be and the police were so intent on pinning this on Luke Mitchell, they just dismissed the whole thing. It's just another unanswered question. How FBI is this though? Scottish police have never confirmed the report's existence, but it was eventually released by the FBI following a Freedom of Information request. Like something straight out of a black op, the majority of the eight-page report was heavily redacted and large parts of the document were blacked out. Luke Mitchell was formally named as Jodie Jones's killer by Lothian and Borders Police in November 2003 after they submitted a report to the Procurator Fiscal. Even so, Luke was not arrested until April 14, 2004, five months later, when he was finally charged with Jodie's murder. A lesser charge of possessing a knife in a public place and cannabis resin was also on the cards. Luke owned a four-inch knife known as a skunting blade. Professor Busuttil's description of a stout, sharp-pointed blade certainly describes the blade in question. In the immediate aftermath of the murder, the blade and its accompanying pouch were not recovered, but the pouch later was. It was engraved with the numbers 666 and JJ 1989-2003, the former being the number of the beast and the latter being Jodie's initials, date of birth and date of death. Luke was later questioned about the missing knife but could not explain where it was or how it had become separated from its pouch. When asked how he would like to plead to his charges, Luke replied, not guilty. He lodged a special defence of alibi, stating that he was at home cooking his tea when Jodie was murdered. Corrine, Luke's mum, backed that claim up by stating that Luke was in the kitchen when she returned home from work at 5.15pm on the day of the murder. Shane, Luke's brother, was upstairs at the time and previously told police that he recalled seeing Luke mashing potatoes, or tarties as he put it, at around the same time. Shane's story lost its value, however, when he went back on what he said after the police arrested Luke on April 14th. 
When Luke was supposedly cooking tea, Shane said he was in fact upstairs watching pornography online. He wouldn't do that if anyone else had been in the house with him, indicating he was alone. During the trial, Luke didn't testify once by the way, Shane testified that he had discussed his first statement with Corrine before speaking to the police. Corrine was later arrested for perjury, but the charges were subsequently dropped. Let's throw some more evidence into the mix now. The Channel 5 documentary offered a few new suggestions as to who Jodie's killer may have been. Mark Kane, a student at New Battle Abbey College at the time of the murder, was one such suspect named in the documentary. The story goes that Mark was in the woods where Jodie was murdered on the night she was murdered at the same time that she was murdered. Scott Forbes, Mark's friend, said that the student turned up at his house on July 1st, 2003, the day after Jodie's murder, with three deep scratches on his face. When asked about the injuries, Mark allegedly told Scott they had been caused by falling into a thorny bush after being high on drugs. Jodie was said to have attacked her killer, remember? So, were the scratches on Mark's face caused by the murdered teenager? Mark's mum, Norma, says there is no chance that her son killed Jodie. Norma admitted that Mark was formerly a drug addict, but he hadn't touched the stuff for a good while and was turning his life around by pursuing further education. Norma said he then went on to study at Stirling University, but in the documentary, they made out that he was up in a field taking drugs and the rest of it. Mark was also alleged to have written an essay at college titled Killing a Girl in the Woods, so say a lecturer at the institution, but it was later disproved in court when the same lecturer confirmed that no such essay had been written by Mark. Mark passed away suddenly at the age of 38 on May 16, 2018, and was cleared by the police of being a suspect. The Channel 5 documentary aired after his death, the cause of which is still unknown, even after an autopsy. Norma has said that she's tried to contact Channel 5 on four separate occasions, but they have not replied to her or even acknowledged her contact attempts. Here is one of the leads police seemingly ignored at the time. 18-year-old John Ferris was Jodie's second cousin and regularly sold weed to Luke Mitchell. Between 5 and 5.15pm on the night of the murder, John rode his moped down Roansdyke Path to meet his cousin, Gordon Dickey. They were seen by several witnesses who were disgruntled by the noise of the moped John was riding. The pair, referred to after the fact as the Moped Boys, claimed that they rode along the path and left the area shortly after meeting. Coincidental and nothing more, right? What if I told you that John cut off his hair with scissors a few days later? Suspicious, no? He also didn't speak to the police to say where he had been until five days after Jodie's body was found and at one point he misstated the time he was on Roan's Dyke path. Whenever he was asked outright if he had murdered Jodie during the trial, he simply replied, no. Crucially, John testified that he regularly saw Luke with a knife or knives. Luke even left a knife at John's house on one occasion, according to the 18-year-old, which he later handed into the police after Jodie was murdered. What came of the knife is not known. I assume it was not linked to her murder in any way and probably wasn't the skunting knife that was missing. Let's now revisit the used condom found at the crime scene. The DNA was initially claimed by Luke's defence team to match that of James Falconer, a man that lived in a house overlooking Roansdyke Path. The defence put forward that James, frustrated at the lack of privacy in his own home, had headed down to the isolated path for a posh wank. Once he'd finished, he was said to have discarded the condom before returning home. 
If he was out between 8 and 9pm, which was the time frame suggested, it would have been nigh on impossible for James not to spot Jodie's body in the area. The condom's DNA was later said to not match the DNA of James Falconer, so I've no idea what to make of that part of the story. Just when you think you've got some vital evidence in this case, a contradictory point is put forward, which then puts doubt in your mind. No wonder it's still debated to this day. Another witness, Andrina Bryson, claimed to have seen a couple matching Luke and Jodie's description at the East Houses entrance of Ronsdyke Path at around 4.50pm on the night of the murder. The man she saw was said to be wearing a distinctive Parker jacket with its fluffy collar turned up. Andrina was unable to pick Luke out in court as being one of the people she'd seen that night, despite having previously identified him from pictures shown to her at the time. The description Andrina gave of the woman sort of matched Jodie Jones and the timings matched perfectly. Two further witnesses, Lorraine Fleming and Rosemary Welsh, said similar things. They'd seen a man, later identified by them as Luke Mitchell, at the New Battle end of Roansdyke Path at around 5.40pm. The parka Luke was said to be wearing was something he wore frequently, but during their initial searches of his home, the police could not find it. It was also revealed that a log burner had been lit on the night of the murder in Luke's back garden, which neighbours reported as letting off an unusual smell. The court was also told Corrine purchased Luke an identical parka shortly after the murder. Had the original been burned in the fire? Was Corrine knowingly covering her son's tracks? Or was she doing it unknowingly? Perhaps Luke had told her he'd lost his original jacket and burned it himself. As with the missing knife, Luke failed to give a sufficient explanation as to where his original jacket was. Another telling piece of evidence was when Luke described to the police exactly what clothes Jodie was wearing on the night of her murder, despite them being strewn around the crime scene and him claiming to have been at home at the time of her death. Remember, Jodie got home from school at around 4pm and agreed to meet Luke an hour later, so he'd only seen her in a school uniform that day as she hadn't got changed yet. Unless she consulted him on her outfit, there's no way he could have known what she was wearing unless he met her that night. He was also able to describe a red hair bobble in Jodie's hair, which was not visible when her body was found. Her hair was a mess, and the bobble was at the back of her head, naturally. So again, the only way he'd have known that information was either due to a lucky guess, or he'd seen Jodie after school that day. The defence's case rested on Luke being, as they put it, bullied by the police officers and claimed they attempted to force a confession out of the teenager whilst denying him legal representation. Judge Lord Nimmo Smith, who oversaw the trial, allowed a taped interview to be played to the jury as Luke allegedly gave the officers as good as he got. For example, one source said that Luke could be heard on the tape calling one of the interviewing officers a fucking retard. Also, a social worker was present during the interview and testified that at no point did they feel the need to step in and protect Luke from being bullied or harassed. The final piece of evidence I want to throw your way was when a witness claimed that Luke once told him that he knew the most efficient way to slit someone's throat. A fellow weed smoker, the witness went on to say that Luke said he could imagine getting high one day and murdering someone. That's a lot of information to take in and I appreciate I've thrown a lot at you there. As you form your own opinion, let me advise what the jury thought. It took them just five hours to reach a decision and when they returned to the court on January 21st, 2005, they advised Judge Smith that they found Luke Mitchell guilty of murdering Jodie Jones and of supplying cannabis. 
On February 11, 2005, at the High Court in Edinburgh, Judge Smith handed 16-year-old Luke Mitchell a life sentence with a minimum term of 20 years. Luke was granted leave to appeal his conviction in March 2006, with the Court of Criminal Appeal in Edinburgh hearing his case in February 2008. By May 2008, his appeal concluded and his original conviction was upheld. Luke appealed his conviction again in February 2011, but was once more rejected. After the Cadder vs HM Advocate ruling on October 26, 2010, it was ruled that Scottish police could no longer question suspects without them being given the opportunity to discuss their case privately with a legal representative. Luke's legal team used that new ruling to retrospectively appeal his conviction in April 2011 on the grounds that his human rights had been violated. The chance to appeal to the Supreme Court on those grounds was quashed in November 2011 due to Luke's case occurring prior to the new ruling. Luke offered to take a lie detector test in 2013 with Terry Mullins, the founder of UK Polygraph Services. Luke appears to have passed the test with flying colours, as when Terry was later asked in 2019 as to whether he believed Luke killed Jodie, he replied, absolutely not. Corrine Mitchell was also subjected to a lie detector test and passed. Terry is confident that she didn't interfere with either helping Luke or covering for him. Speaking of Corrine, her health has taken a drastic hit after the imprisonment of her youngest son. She's had two strokes and now suffers from heart problems and the lung disease emphysema. Corrine has also lost pretty much everything and is currently living in her old business's office, struggling to make ends meet. More appeals were rejected in 2014 and 2018, and in 2019, the online fundraising platform GoFundMe deleted an appeal to raise funds for Luke's case. Leading criminologist Dr Sandra Lean, who specialises in miscarriages of justice, set up the appeal, but the website claimed it breached their terms of service. Not one to be deterred, Dr Lean set up a new appeal on Change.org, another online fundraising platform, titled Full Independent Review for Luke Mitchell Case. The description says, In the spirit of true justice and transparency, we, the undersigned, demand that all evidence and information be released to an independent panel, not the SCCRC, for scrutiny, comment and recommendations. The people are willing to raise funds to contribute to the cost of such an inquiry. At the time of my research, the petition had 25,368 signatures. I've mentioned several times the 2021 Channel 5 documentary episode of Murder in a Small Town, focusing on the case from the perspective of Luke being innocent. Police Scotland insists that, despite what the documentary says, they are satisfied that a thorough investigation was carried out at the time. No further suspects have been or will be considered, as far as I can make out, but the documentary claims that five other key suspects were not spoken to by the police. I said earlier that Luke spoke out for the first time during the documentary. Another one of his quotes is, I can't be more clear. I absolutely did not kill Jodie, and I've been locked up for a crime I didn't commit. I will not admit to something I've not done. I want to clear my name. The episode was watched by 1.5 million people and was the subject of several complaints to Ofcom, the UK's communications regulator. Jodie's family said after the programme aired that they were not involved in a police cover-up, despite the show implying as much. Tom Wood of Lothian and Borders Police stated that he believed the programme was incredibly biased and one-sided, whilst reiterating that several appeals made by Luke against his conviction have been rejected. 
To date, Luke Mitchell remains in prison and continues to proclaim his innocence. And that was the story of Luke Mitchell and Jodie Jones. Thanks again, Kaylee Brown and John Robertson for suggesting that case. As I said at the start of the episode, this is an extremely divisive case and I'll probably receive some flack from one side or the other. Even so, I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got five new reviews to read this week. Eli left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing Podcast. It reads, Been struggling with school lately and this morbid yet hilarious podcast has been getting me through my days. Neil Lambert left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Brilliant. It reads, It's brilliant. I didn't know there were so many evil people in Britain. I live on my own now. TV's not good, so I thought I'd try this and I'm loving it. Tesla left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great to Make the Workday Shorter. It reads, I love that you don't go into too much detail out of respect to the victims. Only the important bits and nothing gratuitous. Nice bit of comedy to break the ice too. Love the dad facts or opening comments, so I know if I had already heard that episode right off the bat from Vancouver, Canada. Annette left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great Crime Series. It reads, Excellent podcast. I enjoy listening to at least one episode a day. Love the accent, Stuart. Very easy to listen to. Episodes are concise and descriptive. Keep up the good work. Annette from Noosa, Queensland. And P.2Bears left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts USA titled Jay Moulton Interview. Amazing. It reads, Such a relief to have some more meat in an episode. I get it that the point is to be short and pithy, but story time that's less than 25 minutes makes it hard to listen to because we have to get through the intro and exit and ads on every single one. Becomes not worth it and irritating when too short. Keep the format, but give us a standard in 30 minutes at least per episode. Thank you Eli, Neil, Tesla, Annette and P.2Bears for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Regarding that last one, the show's length, it is what it is. It's been a 15 to 30 minute show from the very start and will remain that way. This episode, being a bit longer, is one of the infrequent exceptions. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you, Rebecca Tramp, for buying me five beers via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Rebecca said, love your show. It's brilliant. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You will get the episode covered eventually, but you'll also get a cheeky shout out as well. That's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.